I think this is really beautiful about design, right? You're able to not just, you know, use from one discipline, but it's this beautiful meld that allows you to see the world with some of an anthropological lens, but then also bring in different frameworks or tools, if you will, to really start to think through at a fundamental level, how do you make something better? Welcome to Design Lab. I'm your host, Bon Koo. On this show, we share stories of amazing humans who are designing a better and healthier future. Today's guest is Dr. Monique Smith. She is the founding executive director of Health Design, the Acute Care Design and Innovation Center at Emory University, and she's an emergency physician at Grady Memorial Hospital. Monique is a thought leader on design thinking in healthcare. As you know, that's one of my favorite subjects. She has expertise nationally and across the globe in service design and system strengthening. Monique leverages design to reimagine the spectrum of acute care within a large health system from the moment a patient experiences symptoms to long after they walk out of the hospital's sliding glass doors. She has appeared in the New York Times and CNN and currently serves as a health equity and COVID-19 advisor for Fortune 100 companies. Before she joined Emory, Monique advised early-stage companies on tech-enabled care for seniors, digital vaccines, and virtual care platforms. Globally, she has worked across five continents to deploy data and technology and expanding access to care, addressing supply chain challenges, and systemically tackling health inequity. I was stoked to have Monique on the show. We share so many common interests. I love it when we hear from our listeners on social media. There are so many who gave us a shout out on Twitter over the past couple of weeks. Dr. Kate Wallen, Abdul Manon, Brian Callis, Alan Brewington, Hannah Toes-Jones, Peter Skylight. Thank you for supporting the show. Thank you for your encouragement. We really appreciate that. If you want to support this show, the best way you could do it is to go to Apple Podcasts and give us five stars and leave us a comment. It's currently the only platform where you can actually rate and leave comments for podcasts. So it really helps us out a lot. It encourages me when I see those comments. Uh, We are so grateful when you do. Doing this podcast is a labor of love. My producer, Rob Gleese, and I put a lot of time into it. Sometimes it's hard to record a podcast and get a guest on the show because we're so busy and often exhausted. But, you know, when we hear those comments, um, when you guys give us good ratings, it, it really encourages us. So thank you for that. Now, here's my conversation with Dr. Monique Smith. Dr. Monique Smith, welcome to Design Lab. I'm so excited that you're on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So you studied anthropology as a pre-med student at Harvard University. Did you want to become an anthropologist or did you always know you were going to become a physician? (laughs) <laughs> Great question. So I grew up in immigrant household. My parents migrated um, from Jamaica a few years before I was born. And so they had never heard of anthropology when I came home after my first semester of college. And I hadn't either. You know, I showed up at school and they do this really interesting thing called shopping, where you go and you check out courses you would have never checked out before. So a friend of mine was like, yo, I'm like heading to this anthropology course, like come and hang out with me. So I was like, okay, great. And I got there and I was fascinated. First of all, the professor was just super engaged 
engaging, but it was something that had been probably a theme throughout my life that I had never totally acknowledged. This idea of understanding people and cultures, something that, you know, I had been thinking through and kind of, you know, not very obviously tackling as a child of immigrant parents and trying to understand what it meant for a country like Jamaica to exist within a whole other larger economic development frame, what it meant to be a Jamaican American growing up in the States and kind of how all those things impact who you are and how you experience the world and some of your outcomes along things. And so really gravitated towards it. And I'd come to school like, oh, I'm going to be a, I'm going to be a physician. So I'm pre-med. I'm probably going to pick some science track and follow that. But it was like, I love this stuff. It's great. So I had to go home and bring the news to my parents. And of course, my mom is like, absolutely not. What type of job are you going to get as an anthropologist? And, you know, my dad's like, hold on, let's hear her out. Let's see why she wants to do this. I don't think she said that she's giving up being pre-med yet. I think it'll be okay. And so we managed to get past that. I went down this path of medical anthropology, really kind of thinking through just how culture intersects with the way you experience illness and how that impacts health systems. And I got to the end of college and I told my parents I wasn't going to med school anymore. <laughs> and Whoa, like, <laughs> how do they handle that? <laughs> Hey, they'd seen how things, you know, I navigated things in the past and I had this whole health policy angle now and met with the medical anthropology. So they were okay with it. They were, they were ready to wait and see. And now that it's been, you know, the better part of a decade and a half, they're glad that they waited and then they looked and saw what was going to happen. But at the time, I'm sure they were very nervous. Some of the rock stars in medicine are this hybrid career of anthropology and medicine. So I'm thinking of Dr. Paul Farmer, who, who was at Harvard. So did your majoring in anthropology, did it impact what type of physician that you are currently? I absolutely think so. I think of the anthropological perspective is a very particular lens to approach the world. One, you always think about your own bias. You come into every scenario, you know, acknowledging that I am a person. I'm a person who's lived a particular experience. So I'm going to interpret things that way. How do I look beyond that to understand what the situation is? I mean, you know, as well as I do, when you work, at, work in an emergency department, when a patient shows up, you've got to be attuned to that bias. Otherwise, you're going to miss things. You're not going to take care of patients appropriately. And so I think it's really not only help me navigate the type of physician and the type of care that I want to provide, but also allowed me to find emergency medicine because a lot of emergency medicine, as much as people think it's resuscitating people and doing all of these other big deal things, most of it's listening and making relationships and forming connections with patients. That's why I love working in the emergency room because here's my chance to hear dozens of stories from humans every day. And in these stories, we can't capture in the EHR in, in our epic, but they're, but they're also important data points. I think a patient story is the ultimate form of data that we can get, but, and we can only do that by sitting down and creating that, the conditions for us to talk to patients. Yeah. So were you thinking about other specialties to choose, or did you always know you wanted to go in emergency medicine? Oh, I thought I wanted to be an orthopod. I played. Oh, me a lot. too. I wanted. I, I love. So I love. Yeah, I love power tools. I was like yeah. power tools and medicine. Yeah, and they're in there. They're fixing knees and they're doing all these things, and their patients are happy. They come in. I, I can't do this, doc. And then they leave, and all of a sudden, after some either a surgery or some physical therapy, they're doing things in their life that they thought they wouldn't be able to do again, and they're doing them with much less pain. I mean, what a cool gig, right? 
I, I, I had an aunt who was very invested in me at a young age. And first she like tried to throw me in the direction of like, look, you should be a neurosurgeon. Look at what they do. And I was like, eh, I don't know about this drilling into brains thing. I'm, I'm not, and I was, you know, I was a teenager at the time. So I'm not sure I'm ready to go in that direction. She's like, all right, we'll go hang out with this guy. And it's actually in Philadelphia who happened to be the, um, the orthopedic surgeon for a number of the sports teams out in Philly. Um, and also had his own practice that was full of patients who were, came from regular walks of life and got to hang out with him for a summer and I was totally enchanted and hilariously the thing that I loved the most was the way that he interacted with his patients they were all friends they'd come in they'd have a really cool conversation he'd make sure that they were set up in terms of what was happening regarding whatever joint issue they were having but it was always this really great engagement and I love the OR days those were fun too um but that's actually what made me came back around. You know, I realized what brought me in and kind of said, oh, medicine's kind of cool, was this relationship piece. And it, it happened to be an orthopedic surgeon who kind of opened my eyes to that, which isn't always the stereotype that you hold of orthopedic surgeons, but it was a really cool thing. And it's interesting. So you focus on the patient relationship, but most of the society, when you think of ER docs, you don't think of us having relationships with patients because there's these uh, brief encounters so how, what attracted you to emergency medicine when we don't have that continuity with our patients? Well, one, I'm going to challenge this idea of lack of continuity because there's some yeah, patients. Challenge it. Yeah. I see them every day. Me too. <laughs> So that's the first thing. There's some patients who not only get their regular care in the ED, they use it as a safe space, right? And so there's some people you get to know extraordinarily well. And even for the people who are just coming in for that one episode, they're coming in at one of the most vulnerable points of their life, right? One of the things that I heard pretty early on in my training is like, you got to think about it this way. When you see a patient, you might be seeing them on the worst day of their life. Like it might just be another day for you, but you have no idea what this day means for them and for their life. And so that's a real privilege, right? And that's, you know, some of the most intimate relationships you have are from those deep and meaningful experiences you have with the people that in your network. You can imagine having that in an emergency department when you're at work. I mean, yes, you can imagine that, I'm sure. But, you know, it's something that's really special. So you work in Atlanta at, at Emory University at Grady Hospital, and that it's one of those classic emergency rooms and long history of great physicians working there, providing just great care to the community of Atlanta. And last year, you founded Health Design ED, the Acute Care Design and Innovation Center, and that's at Emory University. I saw that and I said, this is so cool. So what is health design ED? What are the goals of the center? And what are some projects that you, you and your team are working on? Absolutely. So it is my dream project. So I, when I was finishing residency, I really thought to myself how, what I wanted to work on next. At the time I was living in the Bay Area and I was really into the digital health space and had worked with a few startups there, but I realized that I wasn't the person who was going to continue to operationalize a startup. I was really interested in how you, you kind of designed how startups fit into a larger ecosystem and how you work with them. So I hatched this idea and I was really fortunate um, that Emory um, as an institution um, was very kind of invested in innovation as well as design. And that 
my chair was super excited about this idea as well. And so that was the origins of health design as we know it. So we launched in December of 2019, not knowing that COVID had hit our shores. And we really are about the business of making acute care effortless and bringing equity to well-being. And we think about that from everything from the first moment that you have any sort of symptoms, whether it's your toe pain or your chest pain, and how you then start to navigate your experience of illness, right? And how we kind of take you through that journey. And then as well, how you can enter our system. So how you flow through emergency departments and making that a better experience. And then finally on the back end, like once you're leaving and going through those glass doors, do we need to take care of you in a hospital? Can't we do a better job of thinking through what can be taken care of in more comfortable spaces like your home where we can support you and just care for you better in place? So a really kind of broad scope of the patient experience. And we followed along the patient's experience and not along this silo of this is emergency medicine, this is primary care, but really what is an acute care experience when you have an episode of something that's new and different about your body that doesn't feel right? How do you go through that? And that journey has been designed, even though it seems a chaotic one in our healthcare system. And so you've been going, you, your work has been about like redesigning that journey of like acute care or unscheduled care, like when you have symptoms and you need to see a clinician right away. So what, what are some projects that have excited you in this redesign of this journey? So I think the biggest piece is moving from thinking about just a singular point solution and how we sew them all together, right? And so certainly we've invested a lot of energy and effort like everyone has in the virtual care space in the past 18 months for good reason. But we've also thought about how that happens from different points, right? So how can that happen from the point of dispatch when you call 911, as opposed to how that happens when you're in an employer-based system and you use part of what is one of your employer benefits and are able to access that or what happens when you Google, right? And so thinking about how you attach virtual care to different parts of our system that you're already accessing. You know, the other thing that we've thought is a little bit upstream of that. So before you even get into this piece, how do you start to understand your care? right? 72% of people start with Google, right? And so we've got to acknowledge that as healthcare systems, right? We've got to help them with that process. And so really thinking through what people have been calling the digital front door. How do we use this system of not just triage to put people in the right place at the right time, but also giving them information about their care. And I think the biggest and most important part of that is like, I'm not just taking information from you. I'm giving you something back. And so how do you think about how things like AI can help you do this at such a large scale? but then also backend that with physicians on the other side who are there to help you with your care journey. And then finally, also thinking about this idea of kind of prescribing well-being. We've done this in a very COVID-specific lens of kind of thinking through how do we think about prevention? How do we think about testing? How do we think about treatment? And then vaccination once that was online, but doing that in partnership with a startup that's done a lot around that behavioral communication with patients in an omni-channel sort of way. So meaning we can use text for that. We can use social media for that. We can certainly develop things that can be sent out through email, but how do we do that in a way that matters to someone who is a 29-year-old white female as well as a 57-year-old Latina versus a 85-year-old Black male and knowing that each of those individuals might need information in a different way to best support them and to best um, help them kind of navigate and think through whatever they're being faced with from a healthcare perspective. And knowing that from an acute care perspective, people are most receptive to that type of information when they're in crisis, right? So we have a huge opportunity when we touch them as emergency department physicians to start to be the beginning of that sort of information chain. 
And I'm curious to know your thoughts on equitable tech-enabled care. So in doing my research on you, I, I saw that, and you speak about these biases in digital health that you have experienced personally and also in your work of being in the uh, Bay Area, the backdoor of uh, Silicon Valley. And there's some amazing tech coming out, but there are also some failures in tech, especially in the digital health space. So I was curious to get your thoughts on that because I, I have a lot of thoughts of when I see some of these digital products coming out and I roll my eyes a lot. I think we all do a little bit because you've got to understand what's a widget and what's actually innovating, right? You know, there are a lot of really cool, awesome, new, shiny things that I'm, I'm not going to lie. Like I like to use my Apple watch just as good as the next person, right? But what does it really do in terms of tackling some of these things that we see in healthcare, right? So both like inequity and outcomes, as well as people who are disproportionately using the healthcare system because they have disproportionate needs of the healthcare system, right? And so when you look across digital health, what does adoption look like? Who's actually actually using the sorts of tools that are being created. And then what's the impact from that? I often use the analogy of how I learned things in medical school. Our kind of standard prototype is a 70 kilogram male for emergency oh, medicine. I know. <laughs> it's so annoying. <laughs> it is because who is actually 70 kilograms and a white male? Like yeah. who is actually that when they show up in your emergency department? But that's like a benchmark for dosing. It's a benchmark for who gets what types of treatments and what's successful. But that And you and benchmark. I both work in urban emergency departments when that is actually not the benchmark of our population. Right. But, and I think of how many times I have my biases because I, someone pops in, I'm like, how much do they weigh? I don't know, 70 kilograms. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Because <laughs> who's ever been taught to kind of eyeball a weight in much less in kilograms if you're trained uh, in the US, right? So we don't have to do that in digital health. We don't have to bring that in. But in order to do that, we've got to use some common sense design and really think about who we're designing for and understand that might not be us, right? It might be someone we've never met before. We might not understand their needs in the right way. But that's the sort of innovation that's truly going to revolutionize healthcare, right? Not just the next widget. So I mean, when I talk about equitable tech enabled care, I think there's a ton of promise around what technology enabled with true quality care delivery can do in terms of addressing issues around access, in terms of also addressing some of our implicit biases and what we see on the other side in terms of outcomes. But if we're not intentional up front about how we design that, then we're just going to replicate it. I'll give you the example of something we tackled pretty early in the pandemic. We were using, we were partnering with our, our colleagues in bioinformatics and using AI to really kind of think through how you triage patients from a vital sign perspective. Pretty early on, we had two really simple questions. Like, do you have a fever and are you short of breath? And so we thought of that in terms of the short of breath, in terms of like, can you measure oxygen saturation and cyanosis using facial recognition technology and like, you know, these properties of light and get a very quick read on what that is to triage people to different parts of the emergency department, right? And so project we worked on, we did a really rough prototype and then we opened it up and kind of published it so that it was something that people could iterate and create into something better, realizing that there are limitations in what we did. And we knew that our training data set, we had some variation in skin tone, but we didn't have perhaps the most optimal variation that you could have, right? So we knew that we had um, some representation, but not necessarily complete representation. A few months later, I there was a large industry partner who came and pitched me on the idea of facial recognition software that could predict vital signs for any sort of virtual care thing we were doing. I was like, oh, great. Someone has made this better. Fantastic. I, I would love to hear more. So one of the first questions I asked them is, well, what's the training data set? Well, what did it look like? I have this hunch that this might not do as well for darker skinned people and 
darker skin meaning literally if you think about shades you don't have to be black to be darker skin I mean anything that's not kind of what we often collect information about which is a a pretty slim slice of the population and might not perform as well Mm -hmm. and so interestingly they didn't have an answer and they didn't follow up with an answer and so when I eventually followed up to get an answer they said oh yeah sorry the training data sets pretty bad. It's pretty homogenous. So we really don't have good answers around that. You know, so clearly that wasn't a technology that we were going to adopt. But again, if you don't think about it from the very beginning when you're building something, then what you, what you spit out at the other end is not going to be useful across a super diverse population, right? These, and these data sets, they're biased. The, the way that we collect the data sets, I think there is this assumption just because there's data out there means that it's an unbiased data set. But we bring in our biases in, in everyday data set. And, and when we're talking about like AI and big data, I think we have to check ourselves with, with that. So that's a, that's, a, that's a great story there. And how did you get into design? Did you study it at some point? Was it like in the water in the Bay Area? So I'm just like <laughs> fascinated about your human-centered approach to healthcare, which I, I love it. I'm a huge fan. It definitely was in the water. I had heard all this stuff about designs. So I'll say that before I started getting into what people, you know, called kind of the digital health industry in the U.S., I worked in the global health space, right? And so I thought a lot about health system strengthening and supply chains, but also how technology and data could make things better globally in different countries for that. But when I moved to the Bay, you know, it was harder to keep up that practice and that work. And so I was looking around at what was going on. I was like, huh. Digital health, this sounds a lot like what I've been doing. Maybe this would be an interesting avenue and path. And then I started looking around about how people were describing things and what sort of skill set you needed for people to take you seriously, right? I kept on seeing these words around design, human-centered design, design thinking, user experience, all of these. And I was like, well, what is this? And I kept on peeling back layer after layer. And I was like, ethnography, empathy. Okay, this is all sounding very familiar. This is sounding like anthropology. Apology. And I was really fortunate at a, some Berkeley conference to run into a really great friend and colleague of mine, Chalini Agrawal, who is a designer, architect initially by trade, but a designer at the California College of Arts. And I said, hey, you know, after we had one or two chats, I was like, can you tell me about this design thinking thing? It sounds a lot like anthropology. What is it? <laughs> And we, you know, she was one of, the, one of my great mentors in helping me kind of bridge that gap. I think I've always been searching for a language to explain the type of way I bring in hybrid types of thinking to approach problems. I think this is really beautiful about design, right? You're able to not just, you know, use from one discipline, but it's this beautiful meld that allows you to see the world with some of an anthropological lens, but then also bring in different frameworks or tools, if you will, to really start to think through at a fundamental level, how do you make something better? How do you really approach what you see as a problem and bring to it empathy as well as the principles of what are good and what I like to say common sense design to come out on the other end with something that's meaningful? I love that origin story. And, and you on your website have these common sense design principles, which are great. And one of my favorite ones is, I'm just going to read it, actively generate stories of empathy as you design for others and with others. Can you elaborate on that design principle? 
Absolutely. So this probably gets back to the the, the Bay Area fallacy, right? And, and a lot of how we think through digital health and technical care. Often when you build something, you think about your own experience, you think about your own pain. Some of the best founders um, who've been most successful, they've created something about out of their own painful experience or with some part of the system. And although that's a great place to start, if you really want to build something that's going to have great traction, great adoption, but also be impact in a more equitable way, you really have to think beyond your own story, right? And that piece of kind of constantly building empathy, constantly understanding how someone else might experience that that same issue or what has brought them there and the circumstances that have brought them there. And then also bringing them into that design experience. And I think one of the pieces that's really challenging is that we often live and think in our same networks of people that we we know and we relate to. And that's not necessarily people who challenge us or think about the world differently. But when you start to really seek out those sorts of relationships, seek out those sorts of conversations, it massively shifts how you think and then how you design. And so if you're the, the reason why it's common sense design is because often the way we think about the world we think of that as common sense. But that common sense, again, is this really biased view of how one perspective classifies the news, of how one perspective classifies problems and issues, that one painted stereotype. So if we're going to flip that and create true common sense that's about a more diverse population, then we've got to continue to build empathy and stories and understand people beyond ourselves and to build with each other. There's such a need for more of a diversity of thought in the digital health space and med tech space and healthcare. It reminds me of a conversation I had with the founders of Leah Diagnostics. It's a flushable um, pregnancy test that's disposable. And the founders are all female. And they're like, this is a need. The current pregnancy tests are plastic. There's, we're afraid if, if we dump it in a wastebasket or garbage can, someone might see it. And then this is a real need. And they tell these stories about how they're pitching to investors in Silicon Valley, and it's usually a group of men. And they're like, eh, I don't really see this as a problem. And it kind of took them a hard time to get funding for, for this, but they had a, a successful launch at this year. And again, they, we don't have, if we don't have a diversity of, of people, that we're not going to create the products and services are needed for users. So I, I love your kind of approach to that. And in doing my research on you, you talk a lot about health equity. So it's it's sort of a, a newer term for some people in healthcare. I didn't learn about health equity when I was in uh, medical uh, school. So not sure I did either. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Well, I, I love I love the term of health equity. How do you how do you define uh, health equity? Yeah, I'm kind of curious on your thoughts on that. A lot of times we think about health and we really think about what happens when you're sick, right? We don't think about the well-being side of it, all the pieces that happen outside of a hospital system. You know, care is maybe like 20% of what makes us well and what kind of determines our outcomes, but so much more of it has to do with our the block we live on, right? And what the environment is there, what our access to resources is. Can we get to a supermarket for good, safe, healthy food? Can we walk around safely? Are we able to do the things that we do in our everyday life that allow us to 
be mentally and physically well, right? I think the greatest lessons I've learned about health equity have to do with the patients that I've seen, and it's probably in seeing inequity, right? Seeing patients who show up and just because of how they've shown up, you know, when a trauma comes in and there's an immediate kind of thought of who that person is and what type of walk of life they come from and how they're treated versus someone who comes in more of a VIP lane and comes in a suit and, you know, the great equalizer is a gown, except for the fact that once someone has a gown on, we have no idea who they are behind that gown. And so there are a lot of biases in the way that we treat them around that, right? And so the, the thing about health equity is really trying to understand people in this larger frame of all the pieces that contributed to their health and their well-being and thinking through how we make that not something that everyone has the same access to, but we're on the other side, on the output end, people are having similar outcomes, right? You talk about maternal health mortality in this country, which is disproportionate around Black women, right? You think about just access to food and food deserts, which magically line up in zip codes that are predominantly Black and brown, right? You think about cancer diagnosis and outcomes. Again, something that disproportionately impacts Black and brown communities where you see diagnoses that are later and you also see worse outcomes, so more likely to die from cancer, right? These are the ways in which inequity shows up. And so we've got to be very thoughtful about all the things that play into that. What is the role of a physician in that? Because there are some that argue that, well, these are the social determinants of health. These are things like income and housing and access to food. What can I do? I'm a physician. I treat patients in the emergency room, a hospital. I'm a surgeon. That's health equity. It's for kind of like public health people, maybe the, the government sector. And so I'm curious to know how, you, how would you answer people uh, who go, that's, do physicians, should they really get involved in health equity? You mean that that's not my job? Yeah, that's <laughs> not my job. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm going to like take care of you in the OR, in the ER, in the clinic. This comes back to the design principle of mutual accountability, right? So we all live in this world and we all contribute, right? So we all have been fortunate or unfortunate to land in the circumstances we've landed in. And so this is the thinking about your neighbor, even if they're not your neighbor and you know how we contribute to that, right? You know, these are intentional choices that have been made. When you think about the history of redlining in this country, where certain neighborhoods were purposely decided upon as like bad places. This is where we're going to dump the highway. We're not going to put any grocery stores there. This is just where we don't think it's worth it. And then we're going to push all the people of color over there. And then we're going to claim this really great space right here. And there's a very deep history of that in our country. And we can't just showing up at our work all of a sudden say, oh, that doesn't matter. Because if we do, then we're not treating anything. I think of the patients that come in often, blood sugar's out of control, blood pressure's out of control. If I just hand them a medicine, it's not going to fix anything, right? Like we have to understand why is that? Is it because, is it a medicine issue? Is it a something that's going on in your life issue? You have to understand whole people. And, you know, I think one of the ways that we've probably failed each other in training people in, in medicine is not enabling um, providers to think of patients as whole people. So there's another question then of, well, is it okay to live in my silo? I would say absolutely not in this day and age. And so that's the first thing we have to go about fixing, right? The government and policy sits over there, but it doesn't have to. We have the opportunity to have much more integrated systems of how we care. And that's part of the promise of a digital age. You know, that is technology enabled care. The ability 
to make those linkages and those connections and to think more broadly about those other pieces. So I would say to the doc who says, well, that's not my job. All right, well, is there someone who could help you with this? You know, is there a way to, to think this through with a partner around this so that, you know, there's still a better outcome for that patient? And I think that's part of what the job is of kind of making sure we bring the best of what we can to an individual who's in crisis. I, I love the way that you explained that because it's so easy for us as physicians to take an ultra specialist standpoint. It's like, I'm going to treat this one particular disease or this one part of your body. And if it doesn't, if your problems don't fall into that narrow specialization lane, then not my problem. Right, right, right. I, I was curious to know what role does creativity play in your job as a physician and running your center? So, you know, I used to think when I was growing up, I used to hate arts and crafts. Dirty little secret. I was terrible with construction paper and scissors. So I, for a long time, thought I was not a creative individual. Ironically, I played tons of musical instruments. I like flourished in that space. But for some reason in my head, it didn't connect. That was also creativity. One day I looked up, one day after I'd learned what design thinking was, and I realized that I could be creative. I had lots of really different thoughts about the way that things connected and the way that you could really think again, creatively and outside of the box about how to solve for different challenges, right? And I think the core part, as you well know, of being an emergency physician is, well, I might not have the tools <laughs> to deal with this problem in front of me today. So what am I going to use to tackle this? You know, you think of, you know, you're outside of the hospital, someone suddenly got a broken limb and all of a sudden there's cardboard around it. One of my first experiences in emergency medicine as a patient, not as a provider. So I was hanging out with a bunch of friends and I made the mistake of getting off the ground in the wrong way. And I like, my thumb was killing me. And someone there was an emergency doc in training. They're like, it could be broken. We should just splint it. No x-ray machine, no plaster, no nothing. We're just hanging out on a Friday night and we are ready now to go out. So he finds a plastic knife and a spoon gets a little bit of uh, paper towel and some tape and makes me a lovely little splint. So I, we, we, we go and we play pool with, a, with that's my splint. And a few days later, I'm able to go to, to see a physician. They take an x-ray and they're like, I think you're good to go, probably just a sprain. But, you know, it was appropriate treatment for the time that used the tools that were available, Right. And that's part of thinking creatively. It doesn't have to be that you can draw or create the best thing. It's actually just thinking through, well, I've got this challenge and it has all these nuances to it. There might not be an immediate clear path or like set answer to it, but how do I work through that and use the things that are around me in terms of whether it's people and understanding stories or whether it's using, you know, new and different tools and bring that all in to create something that's better on the other side. Isn't that so funny that we both didn't think we were creative people? Like I did not think I was a creative person. And I was talking about my work to my daughter's art teacher a while back when she was younger. And I said, wow, you're so creative. The way she's a painter and the colors and her work. And she goes, well, you're a very creative person too. I'm like, really? <laughs> I was like, I kind of shrugged my shoulders. I was like, Oh, I just like didn't think of myself as a creative person. And then right. I, I, we get pigeonholed into who's creative, 
who's not creative at a very early age. It starts happening mm-hmm. in elementary school. Right? Or even preschool. Like preschool. Who's, in Mo- who's in Montessori, like tackling the, the art station versus the math station, right? Totally, <laughs> totally. And I, I, I think we can do a better job of who we select to become physicians in our society. There are a lot of people in historically creative disciplines who don't go into medicine because they just think, oh, I need to be a science-based person. But you know, actually like science... And math were my worst subjects. <laughs> and yeah, I was a classical <laughs> studies major in college. So I, I appreciate nice. the common background that we have of both doing majors that threaten our immigrant parents' ideas <laughs> who they wanted their children to be. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, I, how does your background as being a child of uh, immigrants from Jamaica and a woman of color impact your work as a physician? You know, it, it is very deeply embedded. One is kind of this, this sense of responsibility, right? You, My parents came to this country for a better life for their family. And part of what I saw as part of that growing up is I had grandparents that had significant illnesses. So I had a mostly probably prominently my memory who had prostate cancer. And my aunt, the same one who brought me into medicine uh, was a medical physicist. And without her being there to navigate his care in the late eighties, early nineties, my grandfather, he lived for another decade plus and he died in 2004. You know, so this role of someone within the family to be able to help the family through this new world of illness and sickness in this new country, in this new land, is a really important one that I've seen throughout my family. But even in that broader scope of things, I grew up with a lot of conversations about how the world works. My you know, family members would love to get together with other Jamaicans and there'd be these very animated, huge discussions around banana trade and you know why the country was doing well versus not doing well. And you know about how all these elements of culture, of society, society, of economy, impact different types of outcomes. So I couldn't help but think about that from the lens that I'd chosen, which is healthcare, right? And I think all of that comes into my mind when I think about healthcare. It's the anthropological perspective. It's the design perspective. It's that piece of thinking about a larger world, a larger context. And that's certainly true for every patient that comes through as well. Mm. And a question I like to ask a lot of guests is, how might we design healthier lives? So, you know, I think it starts about understanding you know, how people are living, right? So we often start with how people are experiencing healthcare as opposed to what their lived experience is. We talk about the illness experience in medical anthropology and the fact that so much of what that is um, imbued by, you know, how you experience your larger networks of people around culture, even your own understanding of these biomedical concepts, right? But I think this is where we really have to start in understanding people's experience. Experiences, right? You know, if we want people to be able to have access to lives that are, are more influenced by well-being, where they have, you know, the opportunity to be well, then we've got to think through, well, what is it there that we think people are, are having challenges with? Is it that I have a hard time getting access to food that's healthy? Does it a hard time being able to take a walk or exercise in my neighborhood? Do I have a, a hard time being able to have a roof over my head? Am I like struggling a lot of challenges from a mental health perspective because of all the, the stress and trauma that I've seen in my life or because of other factors that are out there, even you know, just things that have come to me genetically, right? If we used to start putting all of those pieces together to understand how people live in healthier ways. 
ways. And I think that fundamentally starts about understanding individuals and being empathetic to that, understanding communities and being empathetic to that, understanding then their neighborhoods and being empathetic to that and understanding what can we do in each of those things. You know, one of my favorite design activities per se is the, the kind of total blue sky. Like how do you design kind of this healthier way of living and being? And in it, there's always a really awesome garden that you kind of can walk by on the sidewalk and grab your vegetables as you, you know, go to work and as you come home, it's a much more active and engaged life where things are easier to access. But you know, that might just be my perspective, right? So really, I think it's, again, about understanding that diversity perspective, because I don't think that way of healthier living is the same for each individual or each community. For our listening audience, you want to learn more about health design, how can they find out more and how can they support the center? Well, you can certainly go to emeryhealthdesigned.com and that's uh, designed with an ED at the end. And you can certainly check out the sorts of uh, innovations and activities that we're up to. And we always welcome hearing from you and we always welcome your contributions to building a healthier and more well world. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. This has been great. You can find Dr. Monique Smith both on Twitter and Instagram. Her handle is at D-R-M-O-N-I-Q-U-E-A-S-M-I-T-H. And you can reach out to me on both Twitter and Instagram. On Twitter, I can be found at at B-U-N-K-U. On Instagram at D-R-B-U-N-K-U. And remember, support the show. Go to Apple Podcasts. Leave us a comment. Give us five stars. Design Lab was produced by Rob Pavisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you soon.